we look to Christ, we see the fullness of the God of creation in Him. We know what love is like because He has come to us and loved us. We know what it's like to receive mercy and grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. And we know what it's like to be a people that, even in having all of that, can struggle to continue to look to you, to continue to hope in you, to continue to, to rest in you. But yet, Lord, you are good and you are faithful. I mean, the, the Christian life is a life of setting our eyes upon the one who is good, the one who is faithful, the one who will accomplish his work and his plan of redemption. And I pray, Lord, that that's what happens for us this morning as we gather around the truth of your word, that we are looking to the God that has redeemed us, looking to the God that has created all things, that has ordained whatever comes to pass, is in and, and working in all things, and that we get to rejoice and rest in the one that has saved us and assured us of what is to come. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would draw our eyes to you, that we would indeed rest, and from that rest, then work and see ourselves as workmen that have been set free to live a life that's honoring to you and it's good and it's a blessing to those who are around us. Help us in that way, Lord, for we do desperately need your help. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, Happy New Year. It's the first Sunday of the new year together. And today we are going to be in Romans chapter 9, continuing our study through the book of Romans. We'll be in verses 24 through 29 today. And we are going to be looking at who God's people are. We've been looking at the, the title of our previous few sermons was Behold Our God, as we are called to behold this God that saves us. But there's just so much. I mean, if you've been, you know, in the past few, few Sundays, the past few sermons in Romans 9, if you have felt somewhat, somewhat um, overwhelmed or somewhat like buried in some of the theological and doctrinal truths regarding God's sovereignty and his working and his, um, his ordaining all things and um, wrestling with some of the truths in passages like this. Um, well, I have good news for you today. Some, in some ways today is a little bit of like, okay, we're, we're coming up for air a little bit. If you felt like, oh, stuff has been hard to chew on and, and breathe. Um, we're doing a little bit of rising back up to the service, uh, surface today. And we've been looking at beholding our God. And today we're going to be looking at behold God's people. And we're going to see that God's people are those whom he calls. And we're going to talk a little bit about God's effectual call in the life of the sinner and those whom he brings into his kingdom. And we're going to talk specifically about that in two big picture areas, those whom God calls out of from the Gentiles and those whom God calls from the Jews. And this is kind of the direction that the book of Romans takes us for a little bit through the remainder of chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 is, again, this dynamic between this relationship between the calling of God of salvation for the Gentile, the calling of God of salvation for the Jew, and then really out of these two broad people groups, he brings them in and makes them into one people group for himself. God has one people for himself, and it's the Christian. And the Christian church, the New Testament church, is made up of every tribe and language and nation and people group. And it doesn't matter what the, what the history or the background is, God is bringing all people in and he's making them into to one people group for himself, both from the Gentiles and from the Jews. We've been talking about and discussing some of the deep truths in Scripture, God's electing love, God's working and his character, 
But we need to remember, as I've tried to remind us all along here, that these topics that we've been talking about in Romans chapter 9 are really kind of cradled within this larger context of who the people of God are. And we've been talking about um, what, is, what are the challenges that kind of would be facing people at this time when the book of Romans is written is that we're, they're seeing God's plan of redemption move forward, but it's not exactly being carried out, maybe in the way that they thought or planned that it would be carried out. They're seeing, Gen, Jews are seeing all these Gentiles receiving all these covenant promises that God had promised to the nation of Israel, but being fulfilled within um, the larger Gentile community. And so the question is like, what do we do with this? That God is, he, he's doing all these things um, within a people group that we never expected for these things to be accomplished in. And we'll see more of that in our passage today. But we're, the big picture is, like I said, we've see, we see God people creating one people group for himself. And then you pull in, as well, some of the other things that we've looked at in the book of Romans. You ask yourself the question, I mean, who have we largely been talking about the whole time? All these theological and doctrinal truths, who are they applicable for? Who is it that, in, that we've seen in Romans chapter 8 that has been filled with the Spirit of God? Who is it that's set free from the law in chapter 7? Who is it that's dead to sin in chapter 6? Who is it that has peace with God from chapter 5? Who is it that has, that's been justified by faith from chapter 4? He's been talking about what is true for the Christian. And so the, that theme continues to carry forward in who the Christian is, the Christian community. Who's it composed of? Who are the people of God? And the short answer could be all of those whom God has elected before the foundation of the world. That's what we've been talking about most recently. But he's saying the whole point today is that, that plan of election reaches into all of the Gentiles and reaches into the, Israel, the Jewish community as well to pull forward those whom God has elected before the foundation of the world to be his people and they constitute one people of God. The Christian community, the church, is who we have composed here. And he's going to continue to talk about um, some of the dynamics of that as we work through Romans 9, 10, and 11. And this is what God has been doing all along. That's the kind of the, the unique part of our passage today is that this is nothing new in the plan of God. That this is what he has planned all along, and he's going to use several Old, Old Testament passages to, to, to help us see that and understand that this is what God promised a long time ago. It's coming to fruition in real space and time in many ways in a different way now because of Christ, but it was what God had planned from well, before anything was created, if you're here for Sunday school, God rested from all of his works. This was all done by the end of day six, if you will. So let's, let's read Romans chapter 9. Um, I'm going to start actually in verse 22 and read through verse 29, and, but we'll focus on 24 through 29 this morning. But I want us again to kind of get the context of, of where we've been and where we're going. So Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? And then in verse 24, he gets, to, he gets talking about, okay, well, who are these vessels of mercy? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we, have, we would have become like Sodom. We would become like Gomorrah. Um, I start back in verse 22 because I want to make the connection between 
what it is that he's talking about in this text, the people of God that have been called both from the Gentiles and from the Jews to make one people of God for him. And this is what verse 22 um, defined as being uh, vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy are people that have been called by God. God displays his patience on vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to save his vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So who are the vessels of mercy? Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So he's saying these vessels of mercy, you need to think, you need to understand, God's vessels of mercy for salvation are those whom he calls. And his called people are his vessels of mercy. And they are being called from the Gentiles and they're being called from the Jews. And they're all being gathered together to God for for one people, for himself. Um, The fascinating part, as I said, is that he's actually using scriptures that one might assume to be applied in certain ways, but he's actually applying in a different way. So one might assume that he uses the the verses in Hosea to apply to the Jews. But he actually uses the verses in Hosea to apply to the gathering of the Gentile. And you might expect that the prophecies in Isaiah of 27 and 28 and 29 would be applied to the Gentiles. Only a remnant of Gentiles are going to be saved. Most of those vessels of mercy are actually probably going to be Jews. But if any Gentiles come in, it's just a small remnant that are brought in. Well, Paul inverts the whole thing. And he's saying, no, the the plan of salvation, the remnant is reserved actually for Israel. And so he, he takes this whole dynamic of thinking Hosea might be applied to the, the Jews, but he applies, them to, he applies that passage to the Gentiles. And he takes a passage that might be, we thought would be applied to the Gentiles, only a remnant as in the Sodom and Gomorrah, which were Gentiles. He actually applies that to the Jews. Instead, for the whole idea of saying, look, anybody who's a vessel of mercy and anybody who's brought in, how are they brought in? by God's electing purposes. And if God had not, I I tell you what, if God had not spared a remnant, none would be saved. It's all within the plan of God's electing love for us to behold him and to understand who his people are. And he uses passages in Hosea and Isaiah that were really applicable and to be understood in a certain way in their place and time when they were first given, but not the fullness of what was packed into that prophecy was completely revealed and understood. So Hosea gives a prophecy, and what they receive is real and true and genuine, but it's not all that there is. What we see is that there's actually some parts of the prophecy of Hosea and Isaiah that are kept hidden, of which are further revealed and clarified through the ministry and the work of Christ, which Paul is taking, and he's looking back upon those and using those passages and actually giving a fuller and broader explanation and meaning to those texts. And so anytime, just a word of encouragement, anytime the New Testament uses an Old Testament text, go back and read the Old Testament context and understand how the New Testament use of it is is expanding and broadening and further exegeting, if you will, that Old Testament passage. So we want to look at two things today, just two points in our sermon today. Behold, God's people from the Gentiles and God's people from the Jews. Verse 24, in our first point, behold, the people of God from the Gentiles, verses 24 through 26, vessels of mercy are those who are called by God, by Jew and Gentile. How, are any, how is anybody saved? They're called. They're elected by God. This is God's, what we would call his effectual call in the life of the sinner for them to, for a sinner to come to know Christ, to be born again. And this idea of being called has been used in the book of Romans already. I think of Romans chapter 4, verse 17, um, gives really, I think, a wonderful picture of it. Romans 4, 17 says this, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, talking about Abraham, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, 
who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Essentially, he's using God's calling in Abraham's life to talk about and to define something that in some ways did not exist, but that he calls into existence. Every time God calls someone to salvation, he's calling into existence something that did not previously exist in some ways. In my life, before I came to know Christ, I was not a Christian, right? His effectual call in my life, it creates, it brings something into existence in some ways that wasn't there before, i.e. the regeneration of the Spirit of God in my heart, my inclusion into the people of God, the, the adoption that I have into God's people, justification, sanctification, glorification. I mean, these are the things that God does when he effectually calls someone. This person that has been ordained by God before the foundation of the world to be a vessel of mercy, there's a real point in time in that person's life where he calls and he says their name and he brings them out from the dead. And when they're brought out of the dead and they're called into his kingdom and they become a citizen of his kingdom, all, all of the blessings that are in Christ are for that person. Everything that I just mentioned, adoption, justification, sanctification, glorification, all of those are full and guaranteed to the life of the person who is called by God from death to life. Jew, Gentile. There's no discrimination on God's part in that way. Whomever he calls, he gives all of his promises to all of his children. Now, in the New Testament church at this time, there would have been some major like theological issues to wrestle with, especially if you're a Jew. God, you mean to tell me that these Gentiles in Christ, they get all of that stuff that, that you promised to us spiritually? And God's answer is absolutely. Everything that is in, everything that is me and in my son is in full given to those whom I call Jew, Gentile, equally. And he's calling people effectually to himself. This is what it is that we've been learning about in John on Wednesday nights. John chapter 6, verse 44 reminds us, Jesus says, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him, calls him, her, drags, effectually. That's why we don't call it just the call of God. We call it the effectual call of God because God's call has an effect. It, 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 it accomplishes what God sends it out to accomplish. God calls and it has an effect and people are brought in. And so then he uses two passages in Hosea to talk about this calling in the life of the Gentiles. Um, Peter actually, you know, Paul references Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10 specifically. Paul does that in our passage in Romans. Um, Peter actually references the passage as well, but not by direct quoting, but more of like just a, an implication um, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. And you think about who is Peter writing to? He's writing to the elect exiles in the dispersion. The, the, the Gentile churches that have been planted and where people have come together and confessed Christ and are gathering to worship. And he says this to the Gentiles. 1 Peter 2.10 Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's the same, he, he's, he's essentially quoting Hosea 2.23 without using the exact reference like Paul does here in Romans 9. But he's saying that this is what is yours. This is what is true for you as a believer, even as a Gentile. You were once not God's people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. Paul's use and quote of it we see in Romans chapter 9. 
you, you just think about the flow of his argument, okay? He's talking about vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then how does he describe the call? As indeed, he says in Hosea, and he quotes Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. It's interesting. You know, you go back and you read Hosea chapter 2, verses, verse 23, which is where Paul is referencing. But the book of Hosea itself is a prophecy to the ten northern tribes who were guilty of committing idolatry and, and adultery, spiritual adultery against God. And it's a prophecy. It's a warning. Judgment's coming because you guys have completely abandoned covenant faithfulness and worship of God. But then he does this in chapter 2. Uh, and I'm going to pluck out a few things that we see actually beginning in verse 14. So there's this prophecy of judgment coming to Israel through the mouth of Hosea. But then he says this, that there's going to be this, this calling. He says in, in, in Hosea 2.14, I will allure her. Those whom he judges, he's, again, he's, contextually he's speaking of Israel. I'm going to, even though I judge her for her unfaithfulness, there's going to come a point where I allure her. I call her back to me. Verse 16, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. And in verse 18, we see it's going to be done by way of a covenant, and I will make for them a covenant, which is actually encompasses all of creation. All of the day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven. This, this alluring and this marriage of God to his people is actually inclusive of creation at large as well. And then we see in verse 19 that it's not going to be a temporary marriage. It will be forever. I will betroth you to me forever. It's when I allure you and call you and create this covenant with you, we are going to be brought into a marriage and it's going to be permanent it's going to last forever. So the question is, well, with whom does this happen and when does it happen? And that's where he gets into verse 21 through 23. In that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say not to my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Contextually, this is spoken of in, in some way to the restoration of Israel out of exile. In some, but in a larger way, the whole reason why Paul is using it in Romans 9 is he's saying, this is a proclamation to God's faithfulness to save the Gentiles. At one time, the Gentiles, you were, you were called no mercy, lo ruhema. And you were called not my beloved, lo Amy. But what am I going to do to those whom are not my people and those who would not receive mercy? You will receive mercy and you will be called my people and you will be called sons of God. Who are the people in Scripture that are the beloved what do, how do we refer to the church all the time? Beloved. Why? Because we're the beloved bride of Christ. Who are the people that have received mercy? The Christian. Who are the people that are sons of God? I mean, these are the things that we've already covered in Romans chapter 8. Who are the adopted? Who are the sons and daughters of God? Those who have the Spirit of God. The Christian. Who, who is his beloved, his, his bride, the Christian, the church? Who has received mercy? Anybody who is in Christ. 
Paul is taking these passages and he's saying, yeah, they were spoken of in this way at that time. But their fuller meaning is to the inclusion and the application of it to the Gentile. He even then in, in Romans 1, excuse me, Romans 9 verse 26 quotes Hosea chapter 1. Verse 9 and 10. i got to get back there. It says this. Hosea, at the time, had married an adulterous wife, Gomer. She had had two children, no mercy, and not my people. How would you like to have the Lord tell you, hey, this is what I want you to name your kids. No mercy, not my people. But there's a, there's a silver lining. Hosea chapter 1, verse 9, but then it bleeds over into 10 and 11. When the, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So he's re, it, it's, it's what we've already seen in Hosea chapter 2. But listen to what it says in verse 10 and 11. Yet... The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall then be said to them, children of the living God. And what does Paul do in Romans chapter 9? He takes that idea that the number of the children of Israel that will be as vast as the sand on the seashore, which should make you think back to Genesis 22 and what God says to Abraham, Paul uses Hosea 1, 9 and 10 in, the, in its application to talk about the salvation of the Gentile. That the number of those saved will be like sand on the seashore, but it's going to be composed of Gentile and a remnant of Jews. That is what we behold in God, in the inclusion of God's people, are those whom he chooses to have mercy upon those whom he once said, you have no mercy. And those whom are now God's people are those whom he said, you were not, once not my people. The sinner is the one that had no mercy and was not, the per, was not a people of God. But now in Christ, we have received mercy. We've seen grace upon grace. And we are now God's covenant people. Paul finds the full meaning of Hosea in its fulfillment of the salvation, not only of the Gentile, but primarily in the calling and the salvation of the Jews. And I think this is a helpful way for us to understand and read through the Old Testament. We see how the New Testament further defines the Old Testament for us and helps us, helps us read the Old Testament through the lens of the new. We stand on this side of seeing the completed and finished work of Christ. And we always ask ourselves the question, what does the coming and the work of Christ mean for that which was written beforehand? How did it point forward to him? And we have an example here in Romans 9 how Paul uses the passage in Hosea to be fulfilled in Christ in its application of the Gentile. But what Paul tells us is that the people of God is not just composed of Gentiles, but it is composed of Jews as well. And we see this in verses 27, 28, and 29, which is our second point. Behold, God's people from the Jews. You might think that, like, the way that Paul's writing, if you're a Jew, you might be thinking, dude, do you, like, do you hate us? Because he continues to emphasize the riches of the grace of God upon the Gentile. But we've already seen, like, earlier in chapter 9, that he doesn't hate them. He's, he says in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't, I don't hate you. He'll go on and later and say, I'm trying to provoke you to jealousy so that you might come to know Christ and confess him. So not all hope is lost. We see actually this theme that's brought up in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, carried over into Isaiah, the Isaiah quotation in verse 27 of Romans 9. Paul doesn't quote all of that Hosea passage, but then he certainly has it in mind because where he picks up in Isaiah is in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Paul's looking back on Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22 and 23. And again, this is another judgment book on Israel for their unfaithfulness to God. But he says in Isaiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 20, you know, again, a lot of the prophets do this thing. Judgment, 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 promise to restore, promise to forgive, promise to heal. Judgment, judgment, promise to restore, promise to heal, promise to forgive. And this is, as we saw it in Hosea, we see it in Isaiah too. In that day... The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as declared in the midst of all the earth. And Paul quotes Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. Though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Just as in the judgment, majority of Israel was judged and taken away into exile, and there was a remnant spared, so Paul sees that as happening amongst Israel and in his day. That at one time they be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them are going to be saved. And he tells us who is the one that is doing this. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. where the Gentiles in Hosea are referred to as being my people, beloved, and sons of God, Israel is referred to as being a remnant or left, left over offspring, as we see in Romans 9, 29. And we see that it's the Lord who is doing it, who will do it fully and without delay, we see in Romans 9, 28. God's plan to save a remnant of the Jews will be carried out on earth fully and without delay, meaning it will be accomplished by him according to his purposes and his time frame. God will indeed save Jews. I mean, how does Paul, how is Paul saved? Is Paul not a Jew? Was he not an Israelite? He was. But how was he saved? His whole argument has been not, I am not saved because of my, my goodness, my law-keeping. I'm not even saved because of my nationality. I'm saved because God elected me to salvation, and God's plan of election reaches into the Jews, and it reaches into the Gentiles. Only to the Gentiles, it's all of this, this proclamation of, you were not my people, now you are my people. You were once unloved, and now you were loved. You had once not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And to Israel, he says, a remnant. A remnant is going to be saved. And God's going to do it and bring it about. And then he goes on in verse 29, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. 
And if you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 1, you see the Lord's indictment, his accusation against Israel. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, this is what Paul quotes. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Why is that? Well, he says in Isaiah 1.10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Why will God judge Israel as if, as in the same way that he judged Sodom and Gomorrah? Because they're acting like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he goes on from there in, the, in, in Isaiah. What to me is this multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of, uh, required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. I mean, these are people that are caught up in the religious system. Oh, we'll go to church. We'll make our sacrifice. We'll do our religious stuff. But their heart is absolutely divorced from any sort of affection to God, love for him, worship of him, really desiring to do any of this for his glory. I'm just going to go through the motions because that's what God cares about. Look, God has never cared about the going through the motions. These things are just always ways for a heart that is filled with love and gratitude and thankfulness for God's salvation to say, well, Lord, what can I do? How can I respond? How can I live in a way that would be pleasing to you because of this incredible gift of salvation that you've given to me? Oh, you want me to come and you want me to offer up my firstborn sheep? Okay, <laughs> like I'm saved. Sure. I can't even afford a sheep. You just tell me to bring a couple birds. I'll do that too. Like all of these things were supposed to be a response to salvation. Never as a way to get in for salvation. And they had totally flipped it. And they're doing these religious things hearts are far away, and in their own private lives, they're doing all kinds of wicked and sinful things, like as if God doesn't see, doesn't know, doesn't care. All God cares about is me showing up, being a good little Christian at church. I'll give a little bit of money. I'll serve a little bit, give a little bit of my time. Stamp. God's approved. Now I can go home and I can do what I want the rest of my week, live however I want with a heart divorced from him. And his, his proclamation is, I see and I hate it. Can't stand it. And this is why God says, if I hadn't decided to save a remnant of you, y'all would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You've, I mean, we remember that story of Abraham with Sodom and Gomorrah. God is like, I've seen their wickedness. Like, gross. Gross wickedness. Their time has come to an end. And what does Abraham do? He intercedes, tries to. If there are just so many people would you save it? I'll save it. Okay, there are so many people. He gets all the way down to, okay, if there are just 10 people, would you save it? Yes, if I can find 10 people. If you can find a remnant of 10, I'll save the whole city. None could be found except for Lot, who was, who was delivered out of destruction from Sodom and Gomorrah. God is saying, listen, Jews, if you think that my salvation of the Gentile 
is incredibly miraculous and gracious, you better see it that way for yourself as well. Because if I had not intervened and decided to save a remnant of Jews for myself, everybody would be smoke and rubble. We take for for granted God's working of salvation. We do these things all the time where we feel like we're people worth saving. And the sobering reality is that had God not decided to say, you were not beloved, but now you are my beloved. And had God not decided to say, you once had no mercy, but now I show you mercy. And if I had not stepped in, oh my, if I had not stepped in and gathered a remnant for myself, you all would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We forget the incredible graciousness and mercy of God in our lives to save us from our sin, to create for himself one people. He's referred to in verse 29 in the quotation of Isaiah, if the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, the Lord of power, it's, it's, it's very clear that it's his character that's put on display. If the Lord of hosts, the Lord of power, had not intervened, it would have been like Sodom. It would have been like Gomorrah. And speaks again of God's power, his sovereignty, and his freedom to call whom he wants to call. This inclusion of Jew and Gentile together, which is, again, the broad context of what we're talking about, is, again, spoken of. Maybe one of the clearest places that he teaches on this issue is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. You turn there. I just want us to look at a few verses here in Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 through verse 16. He says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, so what's implied? Everything from verse 12, commonwealth of Israel, strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, that's been changed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once off, you who had none of those things of verse 12, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have those things from verse 12. How? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he goes on from there, talking about he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. What Paul says here in Ephesians 2 is what he's teaching in Romans chapter 9, but in a, in a theological, biblical, you know, uh, way of including Old Testament passages to describe, help them understand and see what it is that's going on. And, and this is, I think, a, a real good point of application for us is this. 
Anytime you're trying to figure out and understand what's going on in your life or what you see going on around you, think biblically about it. For, go back to the Scripture and have God help you understand what it is that's going on and what it is that's unfolding in your life, in, in, you know, in the inner life, but also in what's going on around you and the relationships that you have, in, in the situations and circumstances of life that you find yourself in. We, brothers and sisters, we have to learn to think theologically, doctrinally, biblically about these things. Understand them from God's perspective. And one of the things that I, I think about is this. You think about all that it is that he has said is true for, for the Christian. I mean, think of just in the book of Romans, 9, 10, and 11, at the end of 11 breaks into Romans chapter 12 through 16, the rest of the book. And, we, and I've mentioned before that you can look at the book of Romans being composed of essentially three parts, sin, salvation, and service. One through three, chapters one through three of sin, four through 11 of salvation, 12 through 16 of service. And the point is this, those who have been delivered, those who were once sinful, having been delivered from sin, now have salvation. How does that person then live in service to God and other people? All of this like theology of election and predestination and divine concurrence and God making one people for himself, all of it breaks into this is important this doctrine and theology is important for you to know so that you can live rightly. Right theology leads, leads to right application and living. Bad theology leads to bad living. Like this is why he continues to unfold doctrine after doctrine after doctrine. It's like, just, just hold on. I know your brain's crammed full of information, but just hold on because this is going to be very applicable. And the application is this. As someone who has been brought into, been created as a vessel of mercy, brought into the kingdom of God, adopted into his family, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, living in a relationship of peace with God, free from the law, dead to sin, alive to Christ. Now the heart is ready and prepared to be catapulted onto a trajectory of living for God and, and living to love other people selflessly, sacrificially. How can I continue to pour myself out into the lives of those people around me when not only do, do they not pour back, but it doesn't seem like they even care I'm pouring into them to begin with? Is that what really God would want me to do? The answer is yes. How can I continue to do that? Because you've been filled by the Spirit of God. Because you have peace with God, because you're dead to sin, because you're alive to Christ, because he saved you. All of these theological truths that need to be imprinted, impressed upon, seared upon the heart have to be there. Because when God calls you to live the Christian life that he calls you to live and it gets ridiculously difficult, you got to have somewhere to go. You've got to have some way of understanding God, Him, and who you are, and all that He is for you in Christ so that you can live freely. You're free. You're free to do missions. You're free to give your money. You're free to give your time. You're free to evangelize. You're free to live. You're free to die. Why? Because you have all that you need or could ever want, more so, in Christ. And the further we get away from Christ and the less we meditate on him and we think about him, the more difficult it is to think and to do the thing that God wants us to do in our lives. I'm not forgiving that. 70 times 7? No. Twice? Maybe. I'm not doing that again. That's where you end up. Self-preservation, protection, Withdraw, 
limitations. You and I, we're good, but only to this far. Why? Because I've forgotten who God is and who I am in God and everything that I have in Christ and the ability that he gives to me to do what he calls me to do. Listen, you want to be a patient person? Guess what God does? He puts you in situations where you're going to be impatient. You want to be a more loving person? Guess what? God's going to put people in your life that are difficult to love. It's just just the way it is. It's It's just the way it is. Now, how are you going to do it? Pull up your bootstraps? Dig deep? Come on. Give me a break. You better be looking to Christ, because if not, you're only going so far. And as you look to Christ and you meditate and dwell upon all that is yours and his, you're free to live the way that he wants you to live for his glory and for the good of those who are around you. This is a time in our service where we're going to partake of communion. And um, I love this time in our service because we're forced to look to Him. And in looking to Him, we should be taking an inventory and, and a thought of all that is for me in Him. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm just trusting in the Spirit of God to be working that in your life in general, but also in very specific ways as we come to the table. This is a time of worship. This is a time of rejoicing. The table is a time of celebrating because you're brought to the table not by your own goodness, but by His goodness to you. And so we, we, we worship, we rejoice in that. So if you're visiting today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, you're not trusting upon any of your own goodness, your own merit, your own worth. You know him by faith and by faith alone, then the table is open for you. Partake with us as a body today. But if you are, are trusting in yourself in your goodness, in your own merit, and not by faith alone for salvation, then let the, just let the table go. Don't partake. But to pray and think about the invitation, the call, the effectual call to call something into existence that did not exist in your life. So the elements are on the table behind you. There's two tables behind you guys. And you can get those elements, return back to your seat for a time of prayer, and we'll partake of the communion elements together in just a short bit.